The following message was recorded as part of the morning worship celebration of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church in Eatonton, Georgia. More information about the ministries, staff, and worship offerings of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church can be found on our website at www.lopc-pca.org. Take your Bibles out if you would. And I encourage you to bring your Bible with you to church. I use the New American Standard Translation. If you have a lesser Bible, that's okay. (laughs) But I do use the NAS, and I encourage you for the sake of continuity to bring a copy of it with you so you can follow along verse by verse as I preach. We're going to be looking at the 18th chapter beginning with the 17th verse. 1 Kings 18, beginning with the 17th verse. First Kings, the 18th chapter, beginning with the 17th verse, and we're going to study through the 39th verse. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, a bit longer than I typically would use, But to get the continuity of what God's saying, it seemed right to do. Uh, Please don't be shocked. We're going to omit the final hymn so I can get you out before 1 (laughs) o'clock. I thought you'd like to know that. 1 Kings, the 18th chapter, beginning with the 17th verse. Once you've found your place, look up so I'll know we're ready to move on. Let's pray together. Father, please help us. Help our minds to be alert and peel back whatever might be hardening our hearts. Help us to hear anew the word you have for us. Let it change us, Lord. Even this morning might it change all of us. And then, Father, help us to take it home and to live it out and be reminded through the power of your Holy Spirit each day of this next week. So bless our time together, I pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I read the passage to you, and this is my custom, um, to try to get all of us on the same page for a moment, how many of you remember the name Frankie Lane? says something about our age. But I is one of you, so it's okay. Frankie Lane had a hit song back in the early 1950s called Jezebel. Very, very popular song. It played on the air over and over and over again. I have promised not to sing this song. But let me just read the words to you. If ever the devil was born without a pair of horns, it was you, Jezebel, it was you. If ever an angel fell, Jezebel, it was you, it was you. If ever a pair of eyes promised paradise, deceiving me, grieving me, leaving me blue, Jezebel, it was you. I do believe with all my heart and intellectually that back in the 1950s, when that song was being sung on the air all across America, 
on the radio that most people understood what a Jezebel was in the biblical sense. Most people understood that there was a devil and that he was mightily at work roaming around on this earth looking for God's kids and others to try to devour. Yesterday morning, I finished the process that we Presbyterians go through to protect our pulpits, and I met with your presbytery, now my presbytery, and they put me through a formal oral examination in front of a crowd of folks, and then they allowed them to ask questions. One of the people, one of the men, said to me, do you believe in a real hell? I said, yes, I'm going to preach about it tomorrow. I do believe about a literal hell. I do believe my Bible and your Bible teach us literally that there is one called the adversary who is working very much against our Lord Jesus Christ in the things of God and wants to tear people and institutions, the church, down. And I believe that very literally. But since the early 1950s, I also believe that the vast majority of younger folks, maybe a couple of generations of them, don't believe that. And I think that's why I got asked that question yesterday. Did you know that there are a lot of people who do not believe in hell? Did you know that there are some of our Protestant denominations that have churches in this community that do not believe in hell? Never talk about it. Never talk about Satan. What I've done is I've chosen a passage that will help us understand what's going on out there. And it's something that's affecting every one of us at this very moment. Let me read the passage to you. And follow along if you would. I'm reading from 1 Kings, the 18th chapter, beginning with the 17th verse. And folks, listen carefully. God is about to speak to us. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? He said, I've not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at the table of Jezebel. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give up two oxen, and let them choose one oxen for themselves, and cut it up, and place it on the, wooden, on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, 
this is a good idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he's occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid any attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench around that altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood and the stone and the dust and licked up the water which was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Just a refresher. Real briefly, if you recall your biblical history, you recall that what God did is he allowed the people to have a king. His name was Saul. Things worked out very badly for Saul and for the nation. Young David becomes king. When David becomes king, he's God's anointed, and he begins to unite the 12 tribes into one nation. His son comes along, Solomon. 
Solomon does the same and builds the temple for worship in the city of Jerusalem. After Solomon dies, things start to fall apart. His sons start to strive with each other and struggle with each other, as so often happens among people. Ultimately, they divide that nation into two nations. A northern kingdom, which was really ten of the twelve tribes, and the southern kingdom, which was the other two tribes. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom, Judah. What we're going to look at is what happens in the life of that northern kingdom. A kingdom that existed for about 200 years, a bit more, 210, and then disappeared totally and no longer exists today. A nation that was made up of God's people but had 22 kings in its history, and the Bible teaches that every one of the kings was evil in God's eyes. And it says the most evil of all was one named Ahab. And we're going to look at Ahab. What Ahab did is he reached across the borders of Israel and he took a wife who was a pagan wife named Jezebel. He brought her into his nation, into his kingdom, and systematically King Ahab and Jezebel, his wife, began to purge the nation of all resemblance that even looked like a godly nation. They began to persecute the priest. And I want you to know when I read that, I I wonder to myself, if that were to come in our nation and they started persecuting the preachers, I wonder how many of us would stand before you on Sunday or if that persecution would overwhelm us. When I look at what's going on in our country, a country that's 237 years old, I see something very similar to what happened in Israel. I see a gradual secularization of our land. And a secular movement is a movement that does not acknowledge the existence of God and has no concern about eternal things. And I look at the things that are happening at first every now and then, and then once a quarter and once a month and twice this last week, where people are doing bizarre things, killing our children, killing each other, going into theaters, going into schools, bizarre behavior. And I think to myself, the boundaries are gone. We do not fear God in this land anymore. Fearing God isn't just to quake by his presence, although it's that in part. It's to stand in awe of our creator and to be surrendered to him. And that's not happening. I questioned as I sat in my study working on this sermon, Where was that whole nation of people when that was happening? When their leadership were telling God to take a hike and they were forcing the priest out of their positions and bringing in false prophets of Baal and Asherah? Where were the people? For 200 years? Folks, we need to be discerning. 
and we need to not go where we should not go. It's not a matter of being told how to live. It's a matter of you and I being obedient to the God who gave his son for us and for that to be the purpose of our life. And not to say, well, somebody, my company, my country is forcing me to do something. I'm sorry, you and I have one Lord and one God, and you and I need to be surrendered to him. Amen? Amen. If you look down at the 17th through 19th verses, you see a confrontation that takes place. The reason the confrontation takes place is because God has raised up a prophet named Elijah, and he certainly must have been compelled by God to go to the king and confront him. Imagine doing that in any country. But he went to the king, King Ahab, and he confronted him with what he was doing spiritually to that land. And he told the king, God has already ordained that he's going to bring a drought on this land as an outward expression of how unhappy he is with what you're doing. You know what a drought does to an agricultural land? Linda and I have been driving around our community, and there's lots of agricultural land. Well, imagine in the nation of Israel if all of the grass and all the fields turned brown and there was no more rain. And Scripture says no more dew. No water coming from the heavens. And we know from Scripture that this drought lasted into the third year. So whatever people had in reserve was consumed. Whatever they were going to barter with was gone. We haven't seen economic problems like they were having. You know who made our country and our world? God. You know who's in control of the rain? and all other natural phenomena, our God is. So when we see a hurricane or a tornado or whatever natural disaster we see, God, by his divine will, has said, I'm going to use that for a purpose in people's lives. It is the natural consequence of a world that is falling apart as a result of sin. We have a sovereign God who can allow that to happen or not allow it to happen. He brought a drought on a nation of people. And he uses nature for our sake, oftentimes just to get our attention. The question is, will those things get our attention? Will we be discerning about what's going on? Once that confrontation had taken place and Elijah had told the king what was going to happen God instructed Elijah to get out of the presence of the king which was probably a pretty smart thing and then he took him out to a little wadi to a little brook and he had him stay by that brook and he allowed water to flow in that brook and he took care of him he allowed ravens to come in the morning and the afternoon and to bring bread and to bring meat to Elijah He took care of his servant. And then when the little wadi's water began to dry up, he told him to go into another land and there'd be a widow waiting for him and that she would give him a place to stay and take care of him. And if you remember your Bible story, he was a blessing to the widow 
She also was out of grain, out of food, and he saw to it by God's grace that that grain never ran out for her. And you remember her son became ill and died, and Elijah raised him from the dead under the power of God. God took care of Elijah. God saw to it that Elijah was okay. At the same time that confrontation took place, there was also a challenge given. Elijah said as he came back into the presence of the king, call together your nation. Call together your false prophets. Call together all all the people who live in this place. And let's go to Mount Carmel, which is an unbelievably long mount in the Middle East, and gather the whole nation together. And there we will have a trial by fire. There we will find out who God is. Your God, whom you call Baal, or the God I worship. That's a pretty awesome confrontation. If you look down at 20 through 29, you'll see the king's response. The king starts to assemble the nation. Now, why in the world would he do that? I bet he was under a lot of political pressure to do something about the fact that they were starving to death that their economy had fallen apart. But don't you imagine he was also quite arrogant? You see, he was the enemy of God, being used by Satan. So he brings everyone together, and Elijah begins to speak. Now, if I were the king, I wouldn't have given Elijah the platform, but he did. Elijah said to everyone, I want you to come close. Imagine a nation of people. And he starts to call out to that nation of people and says, why are you divided between two opinions? And what he's saying is you can't have it both ways. You cannot serve this world and at the same time serve God. He says either you will follow God or you're going to follow Baal. And guess what? That hadn't changed. You and I cannot follow both. We will serve one or we will serve the other. And therein lies a lot of the problem in our life and in the lives of people in our country. I dare say there are people all across this country today worshiping in churches and going out and serving themselves or someone else when they get out of church on Sunday. You see, folks, it's not enough. Just not enough to come to church and to go out and try to be a good guy and try to weigh your good deeds against your bad deeds and somehow think that you're winning and that you are going to end up in heaven because the balance sheet happened to be in your favor just a little. That's not how you get to heaven. You remember how you get to heaven? It's a whole other process. It's under the power of the Holy Spirit coming to terms with the fact that you are a sinner and that you can never get it perfect. You can never satisfy an absolutely righteous God. And he will not allow unrighteousness in his presence for eternity. So it's not a matter of going to church and going back out and trying to be good. Something very different. 
It's a matter of a God who loves us, who has called us into a relationship, who has allowed his son to die that we might live forever. And the way it happens is so simple and so very costly. His son died for your sin and for mine, and they're blotted out in the eyes of a righteous God. And that Holy Spirit that then dwells in us, who comes from God and from Jesus, begins to encourage us to live that righteous life. We're supposed to do right. We're not supposed to be part of that world. We're to be a light and salt in that world. So we go out under the power of the Holy Spirit and we become a witness. And other people should be able to see Christ in us. No place for two opinions. Either you follow God or you follow the bales of this world. You know what the obvious question is. What you been doing, folks? What have I been doing? Take that home with you and think about it. Elijah turns and here these prophets of Baal are, and they've been dancing around. They've been cutting themselves. They've been in a rage, calling out, trying to get their non-God to respond. He hasn't sent fire down to light that sacrifice and that wood on fire. He doesn't exist. But he's deceived a whole nation. He's deceived those 450 prophets. Don't be surprised when that happens in our society and in our world. It happens all the time. It's always happened. What Elijah does is he starts to rebuild the second altar. It's been knocked down by these folks who are dancing around trying to get Baal to respond. He rebuilds the wood altar. He puts the ox pieces on top of it. And he does the most remarkable thing. He says, now I want you to bring pitchers of water and I just want you to soak that wood. Not once, not twice, but three times. I want you to pour so much water on top of it that there's water in the ditch around it. How sure he must have been about his God. How sure you and I can be when we walk out of the door of this church that God is with us till the close of the age. Wherever you go, whatever you find yourself in, whatever kind of situation, God's right there. And he is not going to leave us. And for us to live with that same kind of commitment that Elijah had, we would change the world. It would change your family. It would change you. If you look on down at the 30 through 37th verses, you'll see that there's a prayer that's offered. Elijah has rebuilt the altar, and he turns to God, and he calls out to God, and he says, Lord, light this on fire. Light it on fire so that they'll know you are, that you are the Lord God. Wow. Would you have that kind of faith? Well, he does. And you know why he does? He says it in the prayer. <clears throat> he says, because, Lord, this isn't my idea. 
We're told never to tempt the Lord, never to challenge him. But folks, when he tells us to do it, it's okay. And he's telling Elijah to do all of this. And Elijah says to the whole nation and to the Lord, I'm not under my own power. I'm doing what you told me to do. And he's not trying to be the center of attention. He is a vessel that God is using. Please hear this carefully. God's called me to be with you folks for a season. Praise God. I'm excited about that. I'm not going to get it done. You do know that, don't you? He's going to get it done. I'm just here to serve. You know what else? For it to work, you've got to get on board with me. And together, together, humbly, we serve the risen Jesus Christ. And we live by faith together, and we strive together, and maybe we're going to cry together. And by the way, gentlemen, God gave you tear ducts just like he did the ladies. And if you've lived long enough, you've already learned that, haven't you? But if we strive together and we are servants, something beautiful will happen. But if you look for me to do it or your elders to do it or your deacons to do it, we'll do some of it, but nothing like we might do if together we're surrendered. When Elijah gets through with the prayer, fire comes from heaven. Fire consumes the oxen. Fire consumes the soaked wood. Fire licks up the wood and the water out of the trenches. And what do the people do? The people fall on their faces. And I want you to look at the verses. Look at 38 and 39. And when the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stone and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Folks, that's what it's all about. He wants you and I to say, the Lord, he and he alone is God.